Welcome to NFP, the Non-Fungible Podcast, with your host, D. Klein. Hey, this is D. Klein. Welcome to NFP, the Non-Fungible Podcast. Today, I have quite a crew of uh, guests with me here. I've got the lead developers of NFT Protocol, John Story and Joseph Fisella, as well as the Director of Marketing and Curation at Block Party, Franklin Fitch, who just also happens to be a pretty cool crypto artist. So welcome all of you. Thanks so Thank much, you. man. Happy to be it's here. Great, great having you all here. This is crazy. I've never done a podcast with a whole big group of people here. So uh, bear with me if I interrupt you. You know, I'm not used to that. <laughs> yeah, totally understandable. It's, we'll have to uh, take turns past the baton. <laughs> and uh, Franklin, you were telling me you were just uh, playing on Uniswap there with that uh, Yop. Is that what you were talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, as as of probably you know beating people over the head on my social feed with uh, with that one. But you know, and and I'm not a big Uniswap, right? Honestly, much to my chagrin, I didn't really get into Uniswap until after I should have after the airdrop. Um, yeah, because you know, I was I just didn't understand DeFi. Um, and I think for my own sake, I was like, well, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to throw any money at it. But now that I have like a marginal understanding, <laughs> I'm throwing lots of money at it. So uh, to me, DeFi is probably the most exciting thing um, in crypto other than NFTs. So uh, hugely into both. Well, and here we're kind of bringing a DeFi over into the NFT market with mm-hmm. NFT protocol, right? You That's know, in right. terms of getting something where there you're getting a decentralized uh, trading platform for NFTs. So John, Joseph, I don't know who wants to take the first uh, crack at this, but tell me about NFT protocol. Yeah, I'd love to tell you about it. Um, so what we're doing with NFT protocol is we're taking our original token uh, for Block Party that we had originally uh, launched three years ago, and we're reimagining it and seeing how we can apply this to the DeFi space. And the best thing that we can do with that, we think, uh, is first to create an NFT DEX. And what we mean by an NFT DEX is something like looking and feeling like Uniswap that has a completely decentralized infrastructure that is a bare bones swap interface with more features than the current NFT DEXs that exist, um, which shall remain nameless. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> we, we would like to take uh, some of the features that our user base has been requesting and people that are trading NFTs in our Telegram channel and t- trading NFTs through Franklin's Twitter feed. Uh, we see people OTCing all the time and trading between each other. So we're going to be adding features like NFT to multiple NFT trade. We're going to be adding features like OTC sort of like air swap trades where you can create a channel and do a private trade with another individual. Uh, we're also going to be adding whitelists so you can have a trade that's available, not like on the public. Uh, so like you can list a trade for an NFT, uh, but not anyone can buy it. It's just a whitelist. So like you can have someone choose whether or not they want with the time limit, things like that. So we're really taking like DeFi like concepts and applying it to an NFT DEX that's going to be super bare bones and just something that you can host on IPFS and lives like on the internet and doesn't have a central server curation feed or anything like that. So that's the goal for the NFT protocol right out now. But in the future, we're going to be adding stuff like an NFT index, uh, which is going to be like sort of like taking a, a price feed of the biggest genres or the biggest categories of NFTs uh, and making them tradable as ERC twenties. Uh, and we're also going to be looking at the loans and collateralization with NFTs as well. But it's going to be starting with the DEX. So the NFT protocol. Did I lose Joseph there? Give you some extra features oh, like. <clears throat> 
We just lost for a bit, oh. but you can yeah. continue on. So the one thing he mentioned there is actually several. One of them that strikes me is this collateralization via NFT. Mm. Like that seems like kind of a wild idea. So basically you're putting up an NFT that has an agreed upon say market value as a form of collateral. Can you explain that a little bit, John? Yeah, well, the way I like to think of it is similar to how uh, collateralized loans work right now, mm -hmm. right? Like you put up your BTC and you're able to get 70% of its value in something. And I feel like our hope is for you to be able to say, okay, well, I have this NFT piece of art that is uh, essentially of that same value and be able to extract some of that value out of it, maybe not collateralized 100%. Um, the real tricky part for me uh, to wrap my head around sometimes is trying to find market makers. Like Uniswap mm. has this, um, this beautiful automated way of doing it where you can just create a, uh, a general, this automated market making dynamic. And uh, with NFTs, um, it feels sometimes that it has to be an actual manual. It needs to be like MMM, you know, manual market making for these indexes or for these groups of NFTs that people deem, okay, given these types of NFTs, I'm willing to buy in at, you know, X percent the price and over collateralize and help introduce NFTs again to DeFi. I think if you're looking at like the, the needs that this solves for people using these products, you know, that's pretty clear. Um, you know, people want access to, uh, you know, more opportunity. And I think that they can do that through collateralizing via NFT assets. The other thing that is maybe not as commonly thought of is what this does for the underlying NFTs, right? The underlying asset. Um, what's one of the things that we all know is kind of difficult and depending on who you ask a problem or a solution, maybe in NFTs, you know, price discovery and liquidity. So mm. if you're looking at being able to more effectively establish the price of an asset uh, in the market, these kind of financial products will help. And, you know, I think that's, that's really something that is necessary. There's a long way to, to go in this industry with kind of fair establishment of price and, um, and liquidity. So to me, it, this is another benefit of products like this, where you can take an NFT, uh, turn it into ERC-20s, turn those ERC-20s into you know, yielding uh, stable coins, turn those stable coin yields into cash, whatever it is, it, you're just f um, facilitating the easy flow of money from different financial products to each other. And that to me is always a win. So what's your response, Franklin? We talked about this before the recording a little bit. What's your response to the people who say, oh, this is just used for money laundering and crime, you know, and crypto is being used for all these nefarious purposes? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty obviously false. You know, you, there's a ton of research out there about the actual incidence of, um, you know, suspected criminal spending with Bitcoin. It's very low. Um, I, I can't remember the exact uh, statistic, but it, it's well known that cash is the medium of crime, right? Um, again, copious research on this. I don't want to kind of uh, sit here and parrot talking points that anyone can, you know, research for themselves. But I would just encourage people who may have that thought to just just do a little research. I mean, immediately upon doing a little research, you're going to find, <laughs> go, go deeper than whatever's shared on, you know, Bloomberg or wherever um, in, in some kind of op-ed piece. And you're going to find that that's, that's not true. And, um, you know, there's, there is some wash trading in NFTs. I'm not going to say there's not. Um, I've, I've seen a little bit of evidence of it myself, you know, in, in terms of, 
you can't deny that that behavior that I saw is wash trading. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's not really wash trading in the same way that other financial markets really have wash trading. Um, so in, in crypto exchanges, wash trading is to, you know, kind of create fake volume and maybe attract people to an exchange that's otherwise not really used. Mm -hmm. And that really subjects users to a lot of risk, you know, because that, that exchange is, is probably not safe and for one reason or another. Um, you know, wash trading in NFTs, I suppose the only real risk there is that someone buys an asset whose, you know, value has been manipulated um, for a price that they should not have bought it for. And, and so, yeah, there's some risk there, you know, is, is wash trading something that I think people should um, have like as a user concern for? Yeah. But is it, is it an industry-wide like thing that I, I think deserves as much, uh, as much attention as it gets? I don't really think so. Um, that's just my, my thought on it. And I think for a lot of people who are outside NFTs looking in, they use it as a blanket term to describe behavior that they don't understand. They see the price of Beeple assets going you know, really high in primary sales and then on secondary sales. They see NBA Top Shot, you know, and I, it's kind of crazy. If you look at NBA Top Shot Twitter, the comments, people just are, their minds are blown. Normies, for lack of a better term, are just like, they can't fathom that people are buying digital moments for $75,000. And they, they call it a scam. They call it a Ponzi. They call it wash trading because they simply don't understand the core concept of what's happening, digital ownership. And so you, you have this kind of term thrown around far more than it, it really needs to be. I think that's my TLDR. The term gets way overused. If you actually examine what wash trading is in financial markets, it's kind of misused as a term too. But is there a little bit of activity where, you know, certain wealthy parties are, are maybe moving from other assets, other crypto assets into these assets um, at inflated prices or simply trading between each uh, between each other to inflate price? Yeah, of course it exists to, to a limited extent, but it is way, way, way overblown compared to the actual incidence of it. Yeah, I would say if you really want to be evading detection, cash is probably the way to go. I'm not giving advice here. I'm just saying. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Jenny. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Any criminals watching this? No, jo Joey, don't don't listen to this. You know you're committing crimes over there. No. I don't know if Joe is still with us there. Joe, did you want to finish your thought there, or because you kind of lost? We kind of lost you for a second there. Or are you with us right now? I'm here. I think I got disconnected. My Wi-Fi okay. isn't the greatest. Sometimes it cuts out. Uh, yeah, I was just wrapping up my thoughts about the NFT protocol token being for. Um, a DEX for a index and also for a collateralization network. Um, and that, that was pretty much it. So you guys, you guys took it over. Uh, well, let, let me ask you, like in terms of like, why would people say, for example, you know, you've got your super rare, you've got your block party, you've got your open C, whatever. Why use a DEX? So I think that the advantage of a DEX is that there's no control. There's no central control. So ideally, uh, the open source software can scale horizontally, which means you have this open source software that anyone can build on top of. And then you gain the benefit of having uh, that free and open system that anyone can take and, and build on. And uh, that gets you a user base that is through like a free and open source software distribution, uh, rather than having a proprietary site that everyone has to visit and like everyone kind of goes through your lane. So yeah, we would like to take the open source um, approach as purely as possible. 
by making it a decentralized thing that lives on IPFS that can live on anyone's front end and potentially even um, like the Grap is doing, um, <clears throat> having like competing front ends that earn tokens through the protocol uh, feed and earn fees through the protocol. And that mm -hmm. way it becomes a self-sustaining network that's completely decentralized, which I think is advantageous over some of the centralized sites. Yeah, and, and I think I was actually having this discussion today with someone, um, Joey, but you know, I think there's advantages of each system and, and you kind of have to look at like, what are the advantages of each system and, and why do DEXs exist and why has Uniswap and SushiSwap, you know, really blown up recently? They're, they're doing tremendous volumes, really competing with uh, exchanges that have been building for five years, you know, centralized exchanges. Um, how did they so quickly gain market share and why? And, you know, you think about it in NFTs, in the context of NFTs, you know, the, the fees at uh, centralized markets are you know, a lot less than normal galleries in the physical world, but they're still 10, 15%, 20%. No, it's still substantial. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you, you notice, right. You know, and I'm, I know you've made sales. You notice when that chunk comes out, you're looking yep. at your MetaMask like, damn, okay. You know, but at the same <laughs> time, you know, a lot of artists need that to make sales, right. They, they need the exposure that the centralized markets give them. They need the marketing that the centralized markets give them the support that the centralized markets give them. Some artists do not. Right. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, some artists are producing NFTs in such a way, perhaps very high volume uh, and wanting to do them at very low cost that it would necessitate a DEX. So I think it's like looking at the kind of users and, and the journeys that they might be on. You know, if you're kind of a, a, an up and coming artist who doesn't really have a huge pool of collectors, but you're really talented, uh, you're going to want to be on a centralized market. Right. And you're willing to take that that little chunk that they take out because now you get exposure. Now collectors know about you. Now you're making sales. You, you, it builds your reputation and your, your audience. Um, if you are a really, you know, fairly well-established artist, maybe you've got a huge social following already. You're getting into NFTs for the first time. Actually, maybe NFT, uh, you know, protocol DEX is the right thing for you because the fees are going to be way less. If you have a buyer lined up, it, just do a swap because now you've got a buyer lined up. That's the whole proposition of centralized markets is they help you find buyers. Well, if you come in and you already got one, a DEX is probably the better solution. And then, you know, thinking about it too, what's the other group that may use either the DEX or probably will start with a centralized exchange and then use a DEX? Um, big brands, you know, and, and mm. like really, really large artists um, who want the, the eminence and again, the exposure and the press that comes with using a centralized market. But maybe then at some point, they, they really want to do, uh, again, very high volume, low cost NFTs for fans. And maybe then, that's, you know, at that point, a DEX makes more sense. But at the end of the day, I think a DEX is just a hub where, um, you know, either artists can use it as their primary market because that's just they're in that position, or you know, NFTs that are maybe not befitting primary or secondary sale on a centralized market can flow through there. Wow. So as an artist, I got to ask the question: What about my royalties? What what's how is that all fitting into this? How does that maybe John or Joseph yeah, I'll, uh, address that? Oh, we've definitely talked about it. Um, I, I see two different ways of going about this. Either one, and it's probably, to be honest, a combination of both, like everything else. Um, either having a wrapper. So essentially, the same way that they have like wrapped different other types of coins, you would essentially create like a royalty wrapper. Mm. Your NFT sits inside this contract that really that's the thing that you start passing around. 
where I think it makes a lot of sense is to actually include it into like a 721, like an altered 721 or 155 contract where on transfer you're paying some sort of royalty fee, but it would require almost a new token standard if you were going to put mm -hmm. it into that which my inherent feeling is always like, oh, don't introduce another token standard. <laughs> Just like do something that wraps something because there's already like so many of them. Um, but those are my thoughts uh, around the royalties. Right, because I mean, primarily the trading on uh, NFT protocol is with wrapped Ethereum and DAI, is it not? Um, well, it will be. Uh, we're going to be putting in support for all of the above for wrapped and for ETH um, and for 721-21 swaps. Yep. So not even, and so uh, on the 2121 uh, swaps, we won't, I mean, there's no real royalty. It's hard to take like a 10th of a, you know what I mean? But yep. uh, for anything, yeah, ERC 20 based, uh, the idea is to take some of that. And even, uh, I mean, we've even thrown out this idea of making the, the underlying currency, I mean, until things are baked, they're not baked. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. But it's possible to even say, hey, in order to do a 721, 721, you have to have the underlying NFT token. Um, but I think we're kind of trying to stay in a more decentralized open use. I'm just trying to take fractions rather than um, dictate. So the main focus right now is the 721s in terms of their capacity to be traded um, in exchange with ERC-20s, correct? That's like our first, that's like the first uh, step, yes. Right, because I mean, 1155's kind of been trending lately with the gas-free minting and that sort of stuff. What are your thoughts on 1155? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It, it essentially merges the 721 and the 20, like uh, it, it creates you a token factory that can create both of those. Can you talk about um, that a little bit? Because I'm guessing a good chunk of our audience is not 100% clear on that. Okay, yeah. And we'll see, Joey, correct me, Franklin, if you hear something that I say that you don't think is quite right. But uh, essentially what it does, um, from my understanding, is so as two really important aspects of a 721 are the address and the ID. So with the address and ID, there's one specific thing that at that space. But say something like CryptoKitties or any other, anybody that's minting 721s, each one isn't its own contract with its own address. It's typically one address that has multiple IDs. So it's like, oh, I'm this artist. This is my NFT address. And then your piece will be, you know, ID number three and somebody else will be eight and somebody else will be 57. And those are what kind of changes. Um, and all of those are typically just one of ones. But the idea is that now your ID of three might be a one of one, but his ID of 75 might actually have a thousand. So it adds this idea of balance of to a 721 where, where you can have something that is a one of one or you can have something that's a one of a hundred and they both came from the same token factory rather than having like a 721 factory and a 20 factory. Now they're just saying, okay, let's combine them together. And now you can even, because they're under that same contract, if that has... Um, so say it has like five different token types. It has these top two are, you know, ones of ones and these bottom three all have like a hundred shares. You could actually say transfer this one and 50 shares of this and do it in the same transaction because it's on the same contract. Whereas in the past you've had to 
you essentially have to do multiple transactions to do these bundles. Um, and so to me, it feels like either developers were just like tired of trying to write loops to call, okay, we need to do all these different transactions. And they said, hey, what if we just created one kind of a token contract to kind of handle them all and do these bundled kind of transactions? Well, it's the old necessity is the mother of invention, right? Like it's the kind of thing where you come across this problem and you go, okay, this is a huge problem and maybe this fixes it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah what's, I mean, what's, I'm curious because I, I really don't know as much about this subject, you know, um, is it that the 721 kind of became the standard more just because it was the, was the first, um, you know, in, in your guys' mind, Joey and, and uh, John, you know, do you see like true, um, sort of functional or maybe ideological benefits behind the 721 versus the 1155? Or is it really, um, this is just kind of a standard the industry ended up adopting. And at this point now the industry is considering uh, some other standards. I, I think it's a bit of both. I think historically, I'm not like a standards historian for Ethereum or anything, but I think historically 721 came first. Uh, I, I do know that the ERC, no, the numbering of standards is based on the GitHub or the Git pull requests, I believe. So 721 definitely came first, just because mm. it's Motivation mm -hmm. twofold. Uh, the first thing, uh, because if you wanted to have, uh, let's say, multiple collections like John was talking about, and you wanted to do a batch transfer of like, let's say 10 out of, out of 15 of one token and 100 out of 1,000 of another token, you'd have to do multiple transactions to achieve that with the RC20s. So 1155 was conceived so that you can send batches together. Uh, you can also do balance of batch and get like the balance of different batches of tokens that you have. So you can have like, for example, in a practical case, you can have art that has like, a, you know, additions one of 20 or like, you know, there's only 50 pieces of something uh, and you can transfer them together in one batch. Uh, 1155 also has some optimizations. Like you can have an 1155 receiver which as you all know, if you send an ERC-20 to a token uh, contract that can't handle it, you burn your tokens forever. And there's tons right. of tokens that get sent to the wrong address that get burned. Uh, and 1155 has protections against that. So it's just more of like an optimization. It's a new standard. I think in a lot of cases where you're using a straight up NFT where you just have one of one and it is like non-fungible only, you might want to use 721 because it's less overhead. But in any case where you'd want to do a batch or like collection of things, 1155 is way better than using a, a combination of ERC-20 and 720. Hmm. That's fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't considered uh, a couple of those points. Interesting. I mean, the more we talk, the more I think, man, oh man, I just, I can't wait for Ethereum 2.0. You guys must be really feeling that. <laughs> On their end, I, I think they are for other reasons than me. <laughs> for me, it's, it's a variety of things. It's, you know, just trying to go out and collect you know, the, the, and, and sell art, the gas is ridiculous. Uh, you know, yeah. I think these guys are trying to build. And, you know, if you're trying to build, you, you still experience gas. It's really like two paths to the same frustration here, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was reading a little bit of a discussion today with one of my collectors and he was talking about how um, um, buying art that's been gone through the gas-free minting, there's kind of a sense of like less value there in terms mm. of there wasn't any skin in the game from the artist cost-wise, financially speaking. I, I have to agree, to be honest with you. Um, like 
from me as a collector, I have thought about this. And as an, as an artist, I have thought about this. What mm -hmm. you're going to have, and, and people have even made the argument that like Rinkby uh, test NFTs are going to one day be like really valuable, um, which is a bold claim, right? <laughs> but I, I, I tend to believe it though. And, and here's why, because what is, what is provenance really, right? Provenance is the story of something, but it's, it's a story particularly of what? It's, it's origin, right? And it's authenticity. And the, the kind of original iterations of NFTs, as we've seen plenty of evidence of, have astronomical values now. CryptoPunks right. being the example that is everyone can point to. But people are going to point to NBA Top Shot the same way in two years. Sure. As the first like mainstream. The other project I look at is Artblocks, right? Artblocks mm. is doing incredibly innovative things. Basically, everything that comes out every week now is a first of some kind of thing that's really significant. And so for me, I collect those. And this actually, this idea came out of the Artblocks Discord. And these are all ETH heads who know more than me about NFTs and ETH, right? And, and somebody in there is like, yeah, I think these, you know, Rink B test NFTs are going to be valuable one day. And it's like, I could see it. I could see it. And, and it's, it's because of the story. It doesn't necessarily have to be functionally the same thing. Um, and this is what I mean with, you know, maybe we end up moving beyond a 721 standard at some point. But at that point, your 721s will be astronomically more valuable. I mean, think about it. You know, you've seen Darren like uh, Genesis piece. Yep. Why, why is a Genesis piece sell for more? Sure. Because of the the origin, right? The the story of origin. So these things that have unique origin and um, maybe unique qualities around them uh, that are older of of versions prior, I think they will be really valuable at some point. Well, and even as an artist, there are pieces that I go, yeah, I'm going to mint this one on known origin because I'm really mm -hmm. proud of this piece, for example. Exactly. 100%. Right? And yeah, it's going to cost me double the gas fees that it would have cost to mint it on, say, OpenSea mm -hmm. or Rarible. But because I feel like it's a piece that represents me well, I'm willing to put a little more into it on the financial side, right? And and that's the thing. You're, you're also making a bet in that case that yeah. the market on known origin is going to be a little, a little more hot, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's a good bet. That's a, that's the right bet to make. The other thing that Vlad it does mean I here, put stuff on their list often. Yeah, as well you should, right? Because you don't want to overload that market and then give people the wrong sense of what you're actually doing. What you're doing is you're saying you're branding your activity on that market and saying this activity is premium. Right. right? If I put a piece here, you know it's something that I really care a lot about and it's it's top shelf work. Um, but something Vlad's talked about that's also really interesting here is like you know, the cost of like managing fine art uh, in the physical legacy art world, as I call mm. it, um, is non-zero. It's significant actually in many cases, you know, to ship, uh, you know, Basquiat or, or a Monet from point A to point B. I mean, that's a lot of money goes into that, thousands of dollars. A lot of risk too. And he's talked about like, you know, because I would always complain about ETH scaling and ETH gas, you know, when I, when I joined Block Party and I was always like <laughs> bickering about it and, and uh, you know, grumbling. And he was like, you know, but if you think about it compared to the world that I came from in fine art, it actually is way less cost, but it still gives you that, that real feeling of doing something in a quality way. Like it's like you said, skin in the game is a great phrase. I think that absolutely nails like what it's all about. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to it. I mean, I know it from an artist's perspective that I do take those pieces more seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. I, and I think it's it's a valid feeling. It, it feels like weird if you actually reflect on the psychology of that. But I think we're humans are um, wired to really have a, a disposition towards skin in the game. You know. 
Yeah, I mean, there's skin in the game in terms of the work you put into it, the time you put into it, the talent you put into it, those sorts of things. But it does say something when you, you know, are willing to put that, pay that little fee. Yeah, I'll, I'll pay too. 30, 30, sometimes even 50 bucks. Yeah. To mint a piece. You know, I've paid 50 bucks. To you know, I've seen it over 100 a couple of times where I didn't mm. mint it. <laughs> yeah, and you wait, and you wait, right. But, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a return on investment thing. And I think it shows collectors that you are, you are for real. And, and I do think, and actually it's very funny. I just saw a tweet a little bit ago about NBA top shot. You know, their site is just getting broken by the amount of traffic um, mm. continuously. Right. It's like so much traffic that they can't after seven consecutive tries to, you know, manage it, fix it. And the uh, Roham, the CEO is a great guy, you know, and, and again, the success they're having is so exciting, but he was asking, what do we do to fix this? And put out a poll and i voted what i believe is the correct answer you raise the prices and right. so th think about that you know you're, you're going to have a lot of really different options to price nfts in the coming years as the gas situation changes right you can have really really low cost stuff but you're going to have really really high cost stuff too um and this middle ground is going to be an area that i'm really interested in seeing what happens but what i think is going to happen for the pricing of what you may call legacy nfts that were minted pre, uh, you know, Ethereum 2.0. And again, if we move on from a 721 standard to something else that they're 721s, these could be considered rare artifacts, even more rare than they are um, just as one of ones. Like the entire collection, the entire set of NFTs from that era become even more special. Yeah, they're sort of remnants of an era in a sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I John, mean, Joey, talk to me about talk to me yeah. about this, John. This this whole idea of, um, you know, you you must be dealing with some of the technical challenge of this with Ethereum, right, John, Joseph? Maybe one of you can talk about that. Uh, how are you handling this right now with Ethereum being so overloaded? Uh, wait until Thursday night, which is statistically when gas fees are lowest. Player <laughs> contracts. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> That's yeah. Uh, there's actually a website, gasnow.org, which gives you a live feed of gas and it gives you four categories, like super fast trader and then like just fast, medium and slow. Uh, and it tells you like what the lowest gas price you can put in. Uh, and then just like knowing how gas limits and gas in MetaMask and like on the command line work help a lot. Uh, I've done a lot. I mean, it's really complex, right? Uh, I've had to cancel my own transactions with MetaMask by going into the command line and like replacing them with another transaction with higher mm -hmm. gas fee and stuff. Uh, it, it's annoying, um, but I think it's a growing pain. Uh, we're already seeing Synthetics and Uniswap uh, launching products on Optimism and other uh, layer two technologies that are coming out. Uh, and I think like the transition into ETH2 will help with that. Uh, and I think that there are also other chains that might come online that have bridges to Ethereum that could even be uh, considered competitors. I'm not gonna say anything is an ETH killer because I think that meme is pretty dead. But I do think that there is room for competition. So, and competition is healthy, right? It's going to keep Ethereum stronger. And it's going to, you know, give options to other people in the marketplace. Um, I'm pretty optimistic, right? Uh, I think right now the most pain is being felt by literally noobs who don't understand how gas works. And it is really right. complex, to be honest with you. Uh, the the trade-off there is that gas, it actually is very efficient. But to understand it, it requires such an uphill like upfront cost of like a learning curve. 
that most people don't bother to learn it or it's too complex or it isn't like clearly laid out for them. So if you do learn how to use gas efficiently and like look at the tracker and know how, like what the numbers in MetaMask mean, then you'll be able to effectively use gas cheaply. But if you don't, then you're not going to be using it. So it's a trade-off between complexity and efficiency, which unfortunately is just like a fundamental thing. Yeah. And I just wrote down, or I should write down Thursday nights, right? Is that what you said? Thursday nights? <laughs> yeah. That's when I should that's be minting. Statistically, Thursday night is when you should be minting. <laughs> that's surprising me. I thought it would be Monday or Tuesday night. but Or maybe the right? weekend, right? You, you might think. I don't, well, yeah. No, people not. are trading. People are trading on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess I'm just like watching people trading during the weekdays. You know, it's funny because when you look at Ethereum traffic, Uniswap just hammers the Ethereum blockchain. Like what percentage of the yeah. traffic is just from Uniswap? It's something like 60%, 70%, isn't it? Something like I that. don't know. It's a lot. Probably though. in that range. It makes sense. It's a huge chunk of it. But I mean, so, if you well-deserved. You know, well-deserved. Well, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Well-deserved. I mean, again, like I said earlier on, I was... Um, not a skeptic of DeFi. I just, you know, when you see new things in crypto, you should be skeptical because a yeah, lot of yeah. them are bullshit. But, you know, at the same time, like I, I saw a ton of people that I know who are like really smart traders and investors, like aping in, as they say, to various coins and, and kind of using, you know, uh, one inch and Uniswap and buying uni socks and i'm just like what the hell is going on here <laughs> no this is like this is ridiculous um and i thought you know yeah i don't know what i thought i, th I thought that i should stay back and i think it was again objectively a, a decision that came from a justifiable place but i missed out on a lot of learning most of all i don't think that i necessarily would have made a bunch of money although the, there was good chances the rnr was was nice um in that first little DeFi bubble or boom, you know, whatever you want to call it. Bubbles, again, probably not the right word, but, you know, I, the, the main thing that I, I do regret is not learning about Uniswap sooner. And, and even gas, as Joey said, like I have a rudimentary understanding of, of gas and, and I know enough to like not have it hurt me, you know what I mean? Um, and also I think I'm in like a more fortunate position than a lot of people that I can afford gas, you know? Right. And, and that's, a, you have to kind of reflect on your own privilege there too. Like mm -hmm. right now, and I've seen a lot of people post about this. They're like, if they can afford gas, they're going to go out and they're going to like a pirate kind of take opportunities that other people can't afford. And mm. that is unfortunate. And um, that's one of the areas that I do look forward to with 2.0, because I've seen at times a lot of artists who are not as um, maybe in, in such a fortuitous financial situation uh, who live off of art being crippled by gas. So right. when it comes to that, it's like, you know, that, that makes me look forward to 2.0. And, and like Joey said, competitive chains as well. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of feel like when Ethereum 2.0 is out, like a lot of these competitor chains, I don't know if they'll survive. Well, I, I disagree because, and, and I've thought a lot about that too. Um, I think 2.0, let's not pretend like it's coming that soon. Right. Let's also not pretend no, like that's it's going to be a perfect rollout. Right. <laughs> and flow blockchain is like right around the corner. Mm. And we've actually kind of have a, a partnership with Flow um, to work together on some implementations for NFT. And I got to tell you, you know who makes Flow? Dapper Labs. You know who makes NBA Top Shot? Dapper Labs, right? So, you know, think about how good they are. <laughs> they, their problem is they're too, a little too good right now, you know, uh, with NBA Top Shot being so many people trying to visit that site that it can't. Too be successful. Too successful. Suffering from success. Well, you could argue the same thing for Ethereum, right? Yeah, but I mean, you know, and I would love to get 
uh, John's thoughts on this as well. But my thought is, and, and kind of what Joey kind of echoed is the competition is going to be healthy. And I don't think that Ethereum is going to be crushing everyone any more than they already are right now, as far mm -hmm. as competitor chains, which they are really dominant right now. Um, but I feel we're going to have great competition from flow. I feel like wax can improve. I feel like, I don't know, there, there's going to be others, you know, um, but really flow to me is the, the incumbent challenger. And I think because of the partnerships that Dapper has, it stands a really good chance of onboarding a massive amount of people. Well, tell me a little more about flow. I don't really know a ton about it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the, it's the blockchain that, um, that is kind of under the umbrella of Dapper Labs. And that's a very mighty umbrella. Um, they did CryptoKitties, which again, we know is one of the early successful iterations of NFTs. Uh, they are also doing NBA Top Shot, which I said this months ago, I said, this is going to be the thing that really blows, blows up and brings NFTs mainstream. And that's happening right now. So, you know, if you've got NBA Top Shot building on flow, right, that alone is so many potential users, mm -hmm. <laughs> millions, literally millions, and I'm not exaggerating. Um, and then a lot of the other stuff that they're bringing in through Dapper, it's just huge. It's just, you know, massive deals. Um, so these really big brand deals, really big, you know, organizations um, are going to work with Dapper because they see how successful Top Shot has been and they're going to work on flow. So right alone from those few, you know, kind of data points, you would have to say that flow is going to be a legitimate competitor to in some degree. Now, to what degree that's everybody's best guess, but I would say, you know, ETH dominance is, is not going to stay at levels that it is now for NFTs um, as, as soon as flow gets up to speed. And, and maybe there are others too that I'm missing, but that's the one that I have my eyes on. Well, what do you think, John? Sounds like Franklin, what's your opinion? Yeah, I feel like it's community. Like if you have, uh, and a lot of it to me is developer tools as well. Like, mm. Ethereum to me one not necessarily because of their transactions or like like you guys have seen all these other chains that came out even in back 2017 18 just for the last people have been coming out with other ver other chains that are just as responsive or faster than a lot of times but the community the dev tools um, to me I don't really see a lot of chains being able to I guess Ethereum has like this, well, and, and a lot of people with a lot of money in the space also came from the Bitcoin Ethereum days. So there's also like a little bit of this, I don't know, like tribe, like, oh yeah, this is the thing that like worked and we've been spending all this time using it and people have been building it. There's just like, a, it feels like a investment cost that people in the space feel like, oh, we're comfortable using Ethereum. So why switch to something else where I think that there is a lot of interest where I don't see more um, are these like Ethereum clones uh, like uh, XDAI, XDAI's chain um, is like a proof of authority. You see a lot of people like on stuff like Loom um, mm. that are essentially Ethereum, they're exact clones of Ethereum. They say we're going to take the exact same infrastructure, the same uh, virtual machine, but we're just not going to make it. So you have to pay this gas. We're going to have, rather than thousands of people doing validation, we're just going to have 10, you know, and that's going to make our gas price be significantly lower. 
yes, it's not going to be as decentralized, but you're like chill with that. And those ones, it's been interesting to see those kind of come into the spaces, but they almost always include this like, okay, well, everything's going to be free here until you want to take it to Ethereum. Then you're going to have to pay normal Ethereum prices because if you want to transact with it. Um, however, with things like HoneySwap or these other people are starting to build, bring over stuff that's like on the Ethereum mainnet and say, okay, well, let's just bring it over to this chain if it's, if it's the same let's just do it over here instead. And so I definitely think that there's more, and I think it's like uh, touching on like what Franklin's talking about uh, with um, Flow and Topshot. If you have somebody that can pull millions of users into something, then it's like, that has a pretty good chance of sticking around if they already have some sort of built-in community that they know they can funnel through and have them just end up on their blockchain um it makes a lot of sense to, to keep them there somewhere that has lower transaction fees where you don't have to have the pain of hey i'm spending 20 dollars to do this thing you know for noobs or for anybody that's not doing something financially motivated like art motivated it's just it's nice to not have to pay that right well and there's that interconnectivity that kind of frees you up right to mm. get into those other yeah, and I think uh, John touched on something there that I do want to um, draw attention to because I think it's really relevant. You know, you have, um, you know, kind of these soft solutions. I mean, think of the same way L2 is going to benefit Ethereum. We already have solutions like that for NFT. So when, when I was responding to that NFT ecology question, we'll just, you know, call it that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, one of the things I pointed out is that OpenSea already has lazy minting, right? right? So, you know, there are solutions like this. And, and I think that, you know, Block Party is exploring exactly the same kind of solutions. Um, you know, uh, Nifty being partially custodial. Well, I mean, fully custodial, but, but you know, um, yeah, I guess functionally partially custodial with, with the way they interface with Gemini. They, they have a similar thing and I saw um, one of the twins respond to the publisher of that article and say, yeah, in fact, you, you've got it wrong because the peer-to-peer uh, -peer transactions on Nifty after the primary are not on-chain. Mm. And so really, like, I understand on-chain maximalism. I get it. I, I think that, like, we're working in an industry where sovereignty is really one of the primary value propositions, but at the same time, you have to consider user experience. And really what crypto has, has perpetually and should always perpetually sacrifice is uh, user experience for sovereignty, but to, to what extent, right? And that's kind of the question. So flow, I think, ch uh, stands a chance to solve the, the problem maybe on a more fundamental level. While, you know, if you read their site, you can see some of the things about how they preserve really the sovereignty um, and decentralization without sacrificing the user experience. But for the Ethereum uh, side of things, and just the general way that you interface with NFTs, what I think we're going to see a lot of is systems that um, not everything is an on-chain transaction. At the right. same time, we're simultaneously going to see systems that are aggressively on-chain because that's the way things go. We've been in this hinterland um, and, and now you're going to see differentiation. We're in, we're in the stage of the market where the amount of money and interest and investment in NFTs is so significant that we do see real competition kind of similar to Joey's point and we're going to see meaningful differentiation, I think. And that, that's going to trickle down even to the fundamental level of how you interface with the chain, 
where you do and don't, um, and then how the chain itself works. Right on. Let's talk roadmap. John, Joe, tell us about uh, NFT protocol. What are your future uh, visions here? What are you imagining as what's down the road here for NFT protocol? I guess I'll go first. Uh, oh. Yeah, go ahead, John. I want to really give you a chance to, to do it. Yeah, we'll do. Um, so DEX is definitely the first, the swapping of being yeah, yeah. able to trade. Um, that comes with its own like, okay, how far down, how far into that feature set do we go before we get to minting? Or do we wrap like some sort of a minting tool? Or do we build out like the royalty sort of stuff that we were talking about, which isn't inherently like DEX centered, but like, so there are all these kind of like branches to move out into um, that it'll, as we develop and get user feedback, I think we'll kind of be feeling what comes next. And um, we definitely have already started talking about these bundling 1155 support all these kinds of things that are that are coming. But I really think that once we start pushing it out, people will make it plain, hey, this is the logical next place to go. Even though we have our own ideas and kind of our own, oh yeah, I, for instance, this whole idea of making these like indexes of, you know, these groups of assets that make sense um, in the NFT world, really interesting to me, but it's like there are, there's more infrastructure that needs to be built. You have to build you know, roads before you can worry about the carpool lane mm. sort of stuff. Like nice um, analogy, John. Yeah. Really nice. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> See, and I was going to say, you know, the uh, kind of the cliche is, you know, you're basically working on a car while you're driving it. You know what I mean? Like I find that this entire industry is, it's kind of a fly by the seat of our pants kind of feeling. Do you know what I mean? Like you're just kind of yeah. doing it while you're on the fly kind of idea. Right. Yeah. I think even the same was with block party just as a platform you know it, it like we we launched and i mean certainly we didn't launch with a great platform um i don't think anyone's gonna gonna bs you until i certainly won't bs you and tell you that we did <laughs> but we we launched with incredible artists and mm. we launched with the ability to mint uh and the ability to uh pay with credit card and and crypto and that alone allowed us incredible success you know first 10 drops nearly everything sold out um and then we put the brakes on because we're like, man, we can't really keep building this car at this point while, while driving it. So, you know, we pulled back a little bit and we're about to go back forward again. I'll say that um, in a huge way. So, you know, it, it's not just the kind of broader industry or even, you know, maybe the building of NFT protocol or, you know, but it's like Block Party 2, you know, centralized platforms, decentralized platforms, all of it. It's like crypto just has this orientation of just go 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 and we'll figure it out later you know and, and i think it's great it's part of what makes it really fun to to work in this industry for sure i feel like you know the exciting thing seeing just different elements of the traditional world slowly moving over right mm -hmm. slowly moving over into this realm and it yeah. just it seems day by day there's something else getting added to it that people never imagined it being there and now it, and now it is there you know the top shot is a perfect example for sure so what do you think of the whole um, staking and governance stuff going on with NFT protocol? Maybe John or Joseph can talk about that a little bit. What's going on with the, the governance system and all that? Yeah, so we, we actually have the domain staking.page. Uh, and sort of like snapshot page, we wanted to make this into a general staking protocol. 
but we've just used it for our own purposes to create a staking system for NFT protocol where you can put in, uh, you can go to our website, staking out page and stake your NFT protocol tokens for rewards. Uh, and you can also uh, use your NFT protocol tokens to vote on proposals that we've got coming up uh, in the future. And we're looking to expand this in a few ways. We want to give people that have uh, staked tokens a higher vote uh, weight. So let's say um, you want to buy NFT protocol tokens to affect a change in the protocol. For example, when you uh, look at Maker or something like that, that's an old school DeFi protocol. You know, you're buying Maker tokens or you speculate on, on earning Maker tokens because you're a participant in the network and you want to make a change, let's say, to one of the fee rates. You know, there are many different fee rates and many different ways that economics work in MakerDAO. So you can, as a, as a Maker holder, uh, affect that fee rate and potentially uh, align the system's incentives with yourself or align them for the betterment of the system itself, which makes your value go up. So in the same way, we want to do the same thing, right? We're going to be having NFT protocol uh, token voting and people who are incentivized to uh, make the system better through holding tokens will be able to use uh, their voting power to do that. And we want to give uh, any uh, holder who is committing to a long-term uh, outlook with us uh, additional voting power based on the amount of tokens that they hold. Right on. And uh, what, what, what kind of timeline are we looking at for all this stuff to be like ready to roll? Or is this one of those when it's ready kind of situations? <laughs> yeah, forward-looking statements, pretty tricky, especially in blockchain land. Uh, we do want to have like a feature out pretty soon for the decks, like at least like a 721 to 20 trade uh, with like um, with a whitelist. That's kind of like a new feature that we're adding to to I guess any any decks that exist that doesn't really uh, no one really has that right now. So we're going to be looking at adding that pretty soon. Um, so I would say we want to have something in beta testing mode by the end of next week and potentially a launch of the decks like by the end of Q2, I would say. Uh, of course, there's like audits and smart contract reviews that we have to do to, uh, before we can get them uh, fully functional in mainnet. But, but yeah, we might be able to actually have a beta uh, a little bit sooner than that. Well, and that's yeah, where, you know, say... it's, it's wise to take your time with that sort of stuff, right? Oh, of course. I mean, I was just going to interject there and, and apologies, uh, Darren, for interrupting you. But I no think the pace that I've seen these guys move at is, is just staggering. It's unbelievable. I mean, I came from the exchange world before NFTs and I know, you know, that, you know, that kind of infrastructure is not simple. Really, at the end of the day, you're, you're handling, you know, money with that, that infrastructure uh, and value in the form of NFTs, if not literal money. And, um, you know, it's, so it's tricky. You have to be really precise and uh, just the pace at which these guys are building is, is tremendous. Well, and if there's flaws in that uh, language there, that can be a serious problem, right? So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely train. worth having a careful auditing. I was looking at the Dex UI, the UX mockups. I, I think it's very cool. It's gonna be I, don't know, I don't know which easy. one I prefer. You have a, uh, the working version, and then you have one that's pr proposed by an external designer. I don't know which I prefer. The, the external designer one has a bit more of a wax vibe to me. So I don't know if I'd go with that or if I'd go with the working version. That's just my personal opinion <laughs> how many different yeah. versions well, of this have you got in mind do you think well we actually just opened that up um we actually just opened up to uh today published an article saying hey we have we want to incentivize people to if you have ideas ah. throw together something and send it to us because yeah if you have something if 
if the community has something that somebody that's been thinking about it longer or like some sort of a, we're, we're open, we're open. But I definitely like the more, you call it the working version. I like the kind of the standard unopinionated, if like, uh, because it is kind of open source um, minded, not giving too much style to it. Uh, and I, I don't know if that's like a hypocritical thing to say too much style. <laughs> it's like, well, is that really a bad thing? But I don't know, a, a type of standardness definitely appeals to me more. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I mean, yeah, I, I just looking at it, it makes me think of the potential of what you can do there, though, in terms yeah. of all the possibilities. That that was, I mean, when I saw those mock-ups, um, I was, that got my mind racing, you know, and obviously um, really familiar with the, the vision and, and all the things that NFT protocol um, is intended to accomplish. But when you see a mock-up, it just, it's different. You it know, brings it into reality. In a it sense. brings it into reality and it changes the way your brain thinks about it. Now your brain is starting to be like, whoa, I could really, I could really do this and that and this, you know, and um, it got me thinking uh, a lot in the last 48 hours, especially about, you know, all the kind of ways, all the, all the types of users that are going to love this, you know, yeah, just from a, like, a fees perspective for one, it's going to yeah. be far, far cheaper than, you know, really anything that people are used to using out there. And then mm -hmm. the simplicity of, of the interface. Um, I think it's going to be hugely appealing and, you know, it doesn't really click in your brain just how impactful it's going to be until you see, until you see it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For listeners, I'm looking at it on nft.org and I'm looking under the Dex UI UX mockups. And to me, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever shopped for a home where there was no furniture and you walk into the room and you can't really visualize what the house is going to look like, but then you go to a show home, same structure but it does have the furniture in it and it feels like, oh yeah, okay, I get this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, great analogy actually, that, that's exactly it. Yeah, uh, it just, it makes it feel like, okay, I can see how this would work. Very interesting. I, it never crossed my mind the idea of a DEX for trading NFTs, it's, it's pretty wild. But yeah, so, I mean, like, basically like, you could not, trade. Right? You yeah, know, yeah, absolutely. Why, why not? not? If you, when you actually get to thinking about it, you're like, oh, actually. And like, why same, does this not exist? Same, it's the same way with uh, with the ERC twenties. Yeah, it's yeah. the same way with any any asset. The idea of a dex is fundamentally really new and really old in some ways. I think, and I would love to get these guys, you know, right because it goes back to bartering, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a, yeah. it's fun, it's basically barter economy, but done at scale with like various mediums of liquidity and and yeah, yeah. You know, any I wrote an art, I wrote a series way back when when I wrote for crypto beef for crypto briefing and it was about why Bitcoin is important mm -hmm. and one of the main points that I made in one of the pieces was about the history of money was we went from bartering through to all these different systems but really in a sense we're coming back to bartering yeah back to the source I mean yeah I would love to hear these guys thoughts on that because I've I've looked into that subject too and it feels like you know back to the future. <laughs> kind of a thing, yeah you know? absolutely yeah what do you think I, john joe i have uh it, uh i i want to point out a contrarian view i read a book oh. the other day called uh um, love it called the money the first five thousand years and in it he makes a i think it was in this book anyways he makes a point against the bartering he says mm. he, he's not convinced that there was ever really 
a hardcore bartering, like where I'm actually bringing my vegetables to a cobbler and saying, here are my vegetables. Will you cobble my, my shoes? And he's making the point that, and this is his, um, I guess, idea of like uh, community or slavery or like, he says, there are always debts that people have owed to each other. And he was talking about a, a culture, I believe it was the Inuit, of these people that will like, after a feast or after a, a killing of an animal, instead of whoever like killed it being like, okay, this is my meat and I'm going to give everybody meat. But like, I kind of remember everybody like owes me, okay, you owe me three pounds, you owe me two pounds, whatever. And they bring it and they create some sort of like ledger system for like meat. It's essentially like in these smaller towns, there's always existed just like a general, hey, yeah, I'm just going to help you out. And until it becomes a problem of like, hey, I've been helping you out and I haven't gotten <laughs> anything from it. And that's mm -hmm. when it turns into like, okay, we got to fix this inequality in some way. And that's like when like actual like digits of like, okay. And it was almost like a that community members or friends that like aren't, I guess his kind of view is like in the same way that when you go out with with friends to eat a lot of times somebody just picks it up and you know at the end of the day dollars and cents aren't amongst friends dollars and cents are blurred you know what but I mean? there's an unwritten rule that if you're you know accepting you're abusing every time that kind of is resented <laughs> after a while right yes yes so i and and he makes i mean I shouldn't be the person to, because I don't know necessarily how much I agree with all of his thoughts, but um, this idea that the barter system, or at least ledgers, uh, ledgers were, I believe, ex existed prior to like bartering, um, in this and like uh, at least mentally. Yeah, mentally. Yeah. Yeah, I like that idea of like how kind of the debt lives in your in your memory, right? And. At the end of the day, someone's always getting the odd end of the deal until you get mediums of liquidity, which are money, you know, um, some other instrument by which you can kind of intermediate that, that, that debt and that value, you know, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting take. Well, Vlad and I but, talked about that a little bit, that idea of storing value mm. in things like art. Well, I actually was, you, you know, right? Jason Williams. Yeah. Yeah, so J Jason... The uh, kicked drywall picture, isn't that, <laughs> isn't that him? No, that was Sean no. Williams. Oh, I'm thinking of the wrong, the wrong Williams, sorry. Yeah, the wrong one. Jason Williams is like a big uh, kind of crypto investor. And, uh, okay. Uh, I'll send you his Twitter, but he, um, you know, is invested in... Uh, you remember Pomp and this guy invested in Fuocious? This is like the guy who like are kind of like backing Fuocious and, you know... Okay. Uh, anyway, you know, he, I think he sold a company for like nine figures or something like that. And, you know, has been kind of active in the crypto space. And I didn't realize it was like a you know, doctor at Yale and, and all this and, you know, wrote this interesting book and, and talks about that, like the, um, what is it called? It's a uh, Bitcoin hard money you can't fuck with is the mm -hmm. title of the book. And I got it kind of thinking it was going to be a little bit of a Bitcoin, um, you know, early introduction and, and, you know, maybe not as interesting as it was. It turned out to be a super interesting book, um, incredibly well-written, really approachable, but also thorough. But it talks about how, you know, if you keep your, it, it's funny because John's point is right. You know, there, there's real utility. And I've always said this, and I, it's funny that you mentioned here, and I've given lectures on the history of money as well um, hmm. and written articles on it. And it's like, 
the utility of cash uh, or some kind of medium of liquidity was always very high and, and absolutely necessary for society to scale to the point that it's, it's at now or even you know, uh, thousands of years prior. We needed that. But you know, his point, Jason's point in this book is now it's kind of gotten so far from just a medium of liquidity. Now it's a medium of control and manipulation mm. by central authorities. And it's, it's blatantly used to infringe upon your rights and, and rob freedom and promote inequality, you know, um, and keep the rich richer and the poor poor. And I think that's an inescapable conclusion. Anyone who examines the world with open eyes will see that. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's talking about art as one of those things that by which you escape, you know, the, the eternal disenfranchisement and value loss of your cash. Like for me, I don't keep very much cash, you know, um, for that reason. It's just worthless to me. I, I really don't feel like my cash is something that outside of its immediate utility to do things, you know, day-to-day, uh, -day, which increasingly is being replaced by crypto. You know, like Binance has a credit card. You can go spend crypto at a lot of retailers. You're seeing more and more iterations of that. But, you know, there is a need to basically, until that utility of crypto catches up, put your value in something that doesn't inherently bleed money like cash does. Right. Yeah, fiat, you know, specifically. And one of those things is art. And he actually pointed out a a statistic that art, blue chip art, actually outperformed stocks in the last 10 years. Really? Um, I think this was excluding the, the recent run up because the book was published right. prior to this crazy printing and yeah, un yeah. unsustainable stock run that we're in now. But, you know, <laughs> nonetheless, it's still a crazy statistic, you know, to think about art being that great of a store of value. Wow. So this was great. Thank you so much for, uh, getting together for this and talking. I mean, any last words? One thing I wanted to ask you about, John and Joe, maybe you can tell me about this. I was talking with Sasha Bailey. He's the CEO of Blockchain Art Exchange, uh, mybay.io. And he was talking about how, you know, we need to look more seriously at this whole interplanetary file system, IPFS, as kind of a better solution for, you know, storing art. And, uh, you know, in terms of like, when we look at, you know, for example, if I'm minting art to something, there's still a central agent there in a sense that's got some kind of element of control of those works of art. Like, where do you see that moving in the future in terms of getting completely decentralized away from that? So Filecoin is supposed to solve that in some way, but uh, I'm still waiting to see which of uh, those file storage solutions will be the best. Seems like that's something that is an unsolved. A few selections are we than some of the others but we don't really have a market leader right now. I think IPFS is just the basic, uh, the one that everyone turns to, but after the rewards run out for mining and the subsidies run out, uh, we'll see which of those three platforms or maybe another one becomes the mainstay for decentralized storage. So I think right now it's a little bit too early to tell. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure, like it, it might be like the bank port to the Uniswap sort of situation where it's effectively the same thing as like the next version, but the next version takes things over. Uh, and that's kind of like the classic MySpace versus Facebook analogy. Um, mm. So we'll see. I, I think it's still too early. I don't think any Web3 apps have really taken a, a hard stance on which of those protocols uh, they think is the best. Uh, I think most people use IPFS now, but it hasn't been tested to the degree that it would need to be uh, to be called the winner just yet. 
So I would say, yeah, that, that competition needs to come from demand there. There's no real demand for like a completely decentralized file storage system right now uh, because everyone's okay with the centralized ones at the moment. But I think that's changing very quickly and we'll find out the answer very soon. Right. I just feel like, you know, in terms of the permanence of a work of art, that is certainly an issue. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm a big hope. I don't know if any of you guys followed the Tim Berners-Lee is trying to create like a new like uh, initiative in web stuff. And I have a friend that's also tried to push forward a project um, kind of in the same way, this idea that we will all one day host our own nodes. Right, that, okay. Um, that, yeah. You're talking about of, solid? I, I can't remember what his project is called. Is that what it is? It's pretty, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's called solid. Yeah, solid. Okay. Yeah, it's, that sounds right. And it's this idea that in, in the future, instead of uploading your your video to YouTube and agreeing to YouTube's terms and conditions, or instead of uploading to Twitter or uploading to Facebook, you're going to keep all of your stuff on your node. And essentially, these applications will have to at, agree to your terms of service. So instead of your domain being an IPFS, whatever, or that you essentially have your own node, and it's at whatever your domain is, and your actual have a little hard drive, for lack of a better word, hard drive slash router in your house that actually houses your art, your data, things about you that right now we kind of like upload to these other servers. I don't know how like reliable, it's a pretty drastic like data infrastructure change. So I don't think it's like, oh yeah, this is gonna happen in the next couple of months. Um, but if something like IPFS, cause right now IPFS, if you're a good citizen, you'll be like hosting a node, right? Like, or right, right. things like BitTorrent. If you're, a, if you're a torrenter, you should be seeding, not just, you know, pulling from that. And so uh, we might get to a point where people are providing their own um, like integrations with these platforms or just with the art that they own. That's where I would love to see it go as like a decentralized like a uh, technologist, I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, yep. But like with everything else, uh, like Joseph says, it's hard to, it's hard to say, oh, well, MySpace didn't work, but Facebook did. It's like, well, why, why do one, th- why does something work and another thing doesn't and, and how markets get timed and technology gets used is all kind of, uh, like there are, there are multiple solutions that are better at scaling than Ethereum, but Ethereum continues to get used, you know? Right, yeah. You know, I just think it's interesting because, you know, probably all four of us here feel that there's a great value in things being as decentralized as possible. Mm-hmm. Yet we still come up across that centralization, you know, in all kinds of different ways, right? And so, yeah, you know, I'd probably, I'd probably even move more towards uh, the on-chain and decentralized, you know, thought process lately. Um, but, you know, the world is not decentralized, really. No. You know? um, it's just that the internet probably lends itself to being decentralized. You know, it's, it's probably the best case scenario for a lot of aspects of your online identity. Um, but when it comes to, you know, the real physical world, that's never been the case, you know? No. Uh, and so I, I think that uh, what is the point that I'll leave it on is uh, let's not get caught in a trap of, sort of myopia around, you know, living our lives uh, in, to a significant extent on the internet and thinking that, you know, decentralizing everything is, is a valid proposition. 
Uh, it, it, in some cases, is not. And I think it's important to realize where centralized systems make sense. You know, and, and I was saying to someone on Twitter the other day, we're kind of in a bridge stage right now before we can really get to more legitimately full-scale decentralized systems and, and NFTs and crypto. You know, we have to get people from point A to point B. Right now, a lot of people don't want to uh, download a MetaMask, right? And the nice thing about NBA Top Shot and why they're having success, you don't have to, mm. right? Um, you know, you don't have to go, go through that process of setting up an Ethereum wallet. They, they really do all that work for you. And if you remember when NBA Top Shot was launched, you couldn't withdraw your assets or your money. Is that decentralized? No, but it got people into adoption phase. And now they're going to eventually, a lot of the, a significant number of the people who are on board to be NBA Top Shot, which will be millions of people, I promise you, um, it's already trending in that direction, will adopt core crypto technology and become huge advocates of decentralization. And that's how you create movements and change in the world. You don't say adopt my position or piss off. You say, <laughs> let me help you get from point A to point B. And, you know, there's probably a point one, a point two, you know, uh, in between there and where you want them to get. Right. And it's that idea of maybe it is running via blockchain technology, but technology, but the average consumer isn't even aware of that. And that's where we're headed, of course. Right. Awesome. Any last words, John, Joe? Nope, just thank you. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. It was a little more technical than most of my discussions have been. But I, uh, I learned some things. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, I really appreciate you guys taking the time for this. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for, uh, thank for having us. And I'm sure we'll be interacting in, uh, in Telegram and Twitter. So. I'll see you in thank, the, uh, auction, you, uh, the auction house. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> all right, thanks a lot, guys. And uh, take care. And I wish you all the best. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right, on. Thanks again for listening to the Non-Fungible Podcast. See you again soon.